There are some passages of Scripture that are difficult to preach on because they're difficult to understand. And I'm not uh, claiming that I understand everything in Scripture. There's things I may, may never understand until I see the Lord someday. And then there are those passages that are difficult to preach on because the truth contained in that passage is a hard truth. And that's what we find in this uh, text, uh, Luke chapter 16, very familiar parable, the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. So we begin at Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19, and we read in Jesus' name. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was, held, was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none can cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send, to him, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take now these words that you have given to us by the inspiration of your Spirit. O oh God, teach us today. Draw us to yourself. Help us, O oh God, to place our trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone, so that we would never, ever have to experience the agony of hell. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, I was visiting in the hospital, and I was coming down the hallway, and coming out of a room was a man with a collar on, so I figured he was some kind of a pastor or clergyman. And there was a nurse who was coming in the same room that he was about to leave, and they just about ran into each other. And here's the first words that came out of his mouth, and I'll quote what he said. He said, did I scare the hell out of you? And at first I thought, well, that's kind of witty, huh? He said, that's what we're supposed to do. But as I thought about it, I thought, you know, that, that's really kind of a sad comment. Because in, in some ways it was, it was kind of a joke about hell, making light of 
this place of torment. And if we understand what the Bible has to say about hell, it's, it's no joking matter. It is nothing to joke about. But sometimes you hear people say, you know, I'm going to hell and I don't care because my friends will be there and we're going to have a big party. There is nothing in Scripture that ever indicates there will ever be a party in hell. And this passage of Scripture makes that so, so, so clear. Now, most people think that they will probably go to heaven when they die. And they've bought into, many of them, the mistaken idea that God has kind of like a set of scales in heaven. On one side is the good things people do. On the other side is the bad things people do. And if, if the scales are kind of weighing in my favor, then I'll, then I'll probably make it. There is no teaching like that in Scripture anywhere. Uh, we are not trying to live in such a way that the good will outweigh the bad so that when we stand before God one day, He'll say, you know what? You just made it. <laughs> you just made it. That, that last good work, you just made it. There's nothing like that in Scripture anywhere. And that is why when most people end up in hell, they'll be shocked to find themselves there. Do you think that's the teaching of Scripture? I do. Because in Matthew chapter 7, this is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice righteousness, unrighteousness. So most people in hell will be shocked to find themselves there. But then, they will believe what they ought to have believed. But it's too late. And that's why I've given the title of my message today, No Unbelievers in Hell. Because when people arrive in hell, they will finally believe all the things of Scripture but it'll be too late. So what will they believe in hell? First of all, everyone in hell, will be, everyone in hell believes in their need for mercy. While the rich man was alive on earth, he probably never thought about his need for mercy. Here was a man who had everything you could ever want. Why would he ever think of asking for mercy? Notice how Jesus describes him in verse 19. There was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. People would say, man, what a, what a way to live. Oh, if I could only be like the rich man. Dressed in purple. That is not a Vikings jersey, for those of you who are, are Vikings fans. It means that his outer garment had been dyed with purple dye, which was extracted from sea snails. And because it was very labor-intensive to produce, the purple dye was extremely expensive. And only the rich could afford being dressed in purple. He also wore an inner garment of fine linen, which was probably a garment made from expensive Egyptian cotton. A.T. Robertson says some of the Egyptian linen was so fine that it was called woven air. 
and was to the touch comparable to silk. And this wasn't just his clothing for special days. Now, we all probably have something nice that we wear for special events. This wasn't that at all because it says that the rich man habitually dressed like this and he was living in splendor every day. And so I can't imagine a guy like this thinking he he needed any mercy. The word was probably foreign to his vocabulary. But in hell, notice how he believed in his need for mercy. Verse 23, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I find it interesting that he didn't claim that he was innocent, nor did he question the severity of his punishment. His plea for mercy was an acknowledgement of his guilt and that his punishment was deserved. He had lived his life for his own selfish pleasure, and now he was reaping the consequences of his unbelief and the selfish focus of his life. And the word that is used to describe his experience there was the word torment. And actually, the word torment is is a plural. could be translated torments. Torments of many kind. And and this word was used to describe in, in his day the rack or instrument of torture by which one is forced to divulge the truth. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that someone is being tormented or that someone is in agony. But when I hear these words, I am so thankful that Jesus has saved me from this. I am so thankful that I don't ever have to experience what this man experienced because Jesus Christ shed his blood for me and there is no condemnation, no judgment, no worry about hell for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would say that's good news, isn't it? Someone has said that the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. And if you look at this text, the bad news is horrible. But Jesus came to set us free from that. There was an old Scotch preacher that was passing by a glass factory before he went to church to preach. And he noticed the door was open and he had a little extra time. And so he stepped in and he looked inside this burning oven that they use for making glass things nearly seared his face. And as he turned away, unaware that anyone was watching, he he said this, what shall hell be like? Someone was watching. There was a worker there that heard that. And several nights later, this man came up to him at church and he said, you don't know me. He said, but the other other morning, he said, you stepped into the glass factory. You looked into that furnace And you said the words, what shall hell be like? And he said, I couldn't get those words out of my mind. He said, I have come tonight because I do not ever want to know what hell will be like. 
And that preacher was able to point him to Jesus, right? That Jesus suffered on the cross. Jesus died in our place. He paid the price for all of our sins so that we will never have to experience what hell will be like. He believed in mercy. It was too late. The second thing we notice, everyone in hell believes that their memory is a misery. Their memory is a misery. You know, the ability to remember can be a wonderful thing, can't it? Now, when we think of the good old days, you've got to get old enough to talk about the good old days. Remember the good old days in high school, Sam, when we were such good athletes and uh, excellent students and such handsome young men that all the ladies wanted to know, right? Those good old days, huh? Oh, we talk about those good old days. And that's why we feel sad for those who lose their ability to remember. My mother was one of those at Alzheimer's before she died. And we saw slowly how her memory was fading away. Couldn't remember certain things until finally she couldn't remember who we were. I remember visiting one time and my brother asked my mom, pointed at me, do you know who that is? She said, well, he's familiar. Um, he's related to you. He, he is. Yeah, he's related to you. He used to be in your tummy. She looked at her tummy and looked at me and said, how did that happen? How did that happen? It was sad because as time went on, we feel like we lost her really before the day that, that she died. But the ability to remember can also be a sad thing because there are some things that you and I would probably like to forget, wouldn't we? Foolish choices we've made in our lives, unkind words we've said, sinful things we've done can bring great sadness. And if it weren't for Jesus and His forgiveness, these memories would be even worse, wouldn't they? Aren't you glad that the things you've done in the past... (laughs) have been washed clean. The blood of Jesus has cleansed you. You're forgiven of all those things. You look back and say, how stupid could I have been? How foolish I could have been. But in Christ, there's forgiveness. But the ability of those in hell to remember will bring the utmost pain. Look at verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember. Remember that during your life, you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. So as the rich man was told to compare what his life was like in hell to that which it was like on earth, just think of the great pain. He went from joyously living in splendor every day to torment and agony. His ability to remember brought misery. To him, And I think one of the greatest ways that their memory will bring misery for those in hell is that they will remember all of the opportunities they had to hear the gospel and to be saved. There will be people in hell who grew up in a Bible-believing church, grew up in a Christian home, 
attended vacation Bible school, youth group, Bible camps, worship services, but refused to acknowledge their need for a Savior. And just think of all the memories, all the times, all the opportunities when God was speaking to them, when God was stirring their hearts. And they resisted. They refused. Think of how terrible that will be. To remember all the opportunities to be saved that were wasted away. And finally, death came unexpectedly. The misery of a memory. Notice, thirdly, everyone in hell believes that there is no way out. It was bad enough for the rich man to be in such an awful place like this, but there was something that made it worse. He is told in verse 26 that there is no way out of this place. Look at what it says. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. In other words, if you arrive in hell, you will never get out. There is not a single exit sign in hell. You go into a building, you see exit sign. One there, one there, scattered all over the building. If there's a fire, how do I get out of here? You look for an exit. The fire of hell, there's no exit sign there. There's no way to get out. William Hendrickson says, Abraham tells the doomed man that there is a vast chasm, a yawning gorge, a typically Palestinian figure for the country where this parable was spoken has many of these ravines. Crossing over from one side to the other is therefore forever and absolutely impossible. This is a very graphic and unforgettable symbolical representation of the irreversibility of a person's lot after death. The chasm was intended for rendering crossing over impossible. What a picture. A vast chasm. Never to be crossed. No exit sign. No way out. That's what hell is all about. They say Billy Sunday spoke in Ely, Minnesota one time. I don't know if you've ever been to Ely. If it's the way it used to be, there was bars all, all over in Ely. And Billy Sunday made this point when he preached there. He said the only difference between Ely and hell is that there's a railroad running out of Ely. Probably not politically correct, huh? There's no railroad running out of hell. There's no exit. I remember visiting with a couple of Mormons who came to our house about a year ago. And I thought, I'm going to try a little different approach. So I asked them, you know, do I have to become a Mormon to get to heaven? And, well, they tried to dodge that until finally, yeah, they, they admitted that. But, he said, when you die, you'll have a chance to become a Mormon before Eternity. I said, you know what? That doesn't make sense to me because the Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. That's what comes. And there's no exit. Finally, everyone in hell believes in repentance 
and evangelism. Do you find that strange? While the rich man lived his life on earth, he had no concern for repentance, no concern for evangelism. He had everything he could ever want. He lived in splendor every day. He didn't need God, or so he thought. And he didn't care about others. But notice when he died and was faced with the reality of judgment, his thinking changed completely. Now he believed in repentance and now he believed in evangelism. Look at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Isn't that interesting? Now he believes in repentance. Now he believes in evangelism. But again, it's too late. Not for his brothers. If someone would warn them, if someone would go and tell them about hell, that they would not come to this place. Oh, send someone. Please send someone, he says. If you look at how Abraham responded to the rich man's request, it might be a little bit surprising at first, but it is clearly the right response. But Abraham said in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, they have the word of God. The word of God is clear, isn't it? What does the Bible say? Is there a heaven? Yes. Is there a hell? Yes. God's word is very clear. They have the word of God. Let them read the word. But the rich man said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. If you send Lazarus back from the dead and they see him, they'll change their mind. They'll repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. Even if someone rises from the dead. Abraham was absolutely right, wasn't he? A different Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary. He was raised from the dead. They wanted to kill Jesus for it. Cause them to be believers? Hardly. Jesus rose from the dead. They claimed someone stole his body. They continued to reject him. So you have other examples of resurrections that took place that didn't change the hearts of, of people. In fact, John twelve thirty seven, John says, But though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. I love Richard Lenski's comment. He said, The Word of God is the all-sufficient and therefore the only means of salvation. God not only furnishes no other means, He had no stronger means to furnish, or as we may surely say, He would have furnished it. What's Lenski saying? There's no other way to be saved other than through the Word of God. There's no other means of salvation, no greater means than, than the Word of God. They have the Word. Will they listen to it or not? That's really the issue. So here's the Word of God. Are you going to listen to it or not? You're going to walk out the door and say, yeah, hellfire and brimstone sermons? 
That's not for today. We don't believe that anymore. God is a God of love. He would never judge anyone. Who are you, preacher, to say that there's such a place as hell? It's not me who is saying it. It's Jesus. And do you know that Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven? Read the Gospels. He spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Who are we going to believe? We need to believe the Word. So God's Word concerning salvation is clear, and everyone will eventually believe it. Some believe it now and are saved. Others, like the rich man, will believe it in hell, but it will be too late. A friend of mine was in an airport one day, getting ready to catch his flight, and there was a lady that was running down the, the, the hallway there, ticket in hand. Her plane was on the runway, ready to take off. Mr. Flight. She says, but I got a ticket. I got a ticket. Let me get on. I got a ticket. She had the ticket, but she was too late. Jesus has provided the ticket, hasn't he? He's provided the way to be saved. But the rich man, it was too late. Too late. I pray that it will not be too late for you. That you can say today that Jesus Christ has paid the price for me. Jesus is my Savior. He is my Redeemer. He took my sin at the cross. I rest in Him and in Him alone. You'll never have to worry about hell as you put your trust in Jesus. Jesus paid it all. The hymn writer says, All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. There's room at the cross for you today. The hymn we sing as we close, though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that we don't ever have to experience what the rich man did in this story. We can know today that we have eternal life. We can place our trust in Jesus, resting in his finished work for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. I pray that we would leave rejoicing today as we trust Christ and Him alone for our salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.